The way to think differently is to act differently and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals into actionable strategies you can use to think big, start small, and learn fast, and find your edge with excellence. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Temi Afong, Chief Operating Officer for Corporate Investment Banking at ABSA one of Africa's largest banks and the most influential banks in South Africa. He grew up between Lagos and London, becoming a leader in the investment banking industry, before being drawn back to Africa to play his part and contribute towards development of the continent. But banking isn't really where it started for Temi, or it wasn't a career he imagined he would end up in. Before that, he had to pivot his way to find what was really going to ignite his passion. Two months into the course, I realized that this wasn't for me. Um, and it wasn't because I didn't feel I could um, do it. I just wasn't passionate about law. Yeah. And it, you know, sitting in the lectures and all the other students just really getting excited about all these topics of jurisprudence. And I was like, um, yeah. So uh, <laughs> I, it's actually quite funny. I phoned my dad and I said, dad, um, I've got second thoughts. I don't want to do law. And he said, uh, so what are you going to do? I said, I'm not sure. The phone went dead. <laughs> so, you know, um, I called back maybe a week later and I said, okay, here's the deal. I'll do the degree, yeah. but I won't practice. Yeah, and get it done. Like, Fine. Temi put the pact with his father to work, studying various streams of business, corporate, and even Japanese law to broaden his perspective, explore options, and his natural curiosity before starting an investment banking in London. But even so, it still didn't leave a direct path to where he is today, leading billion-dollar transformations and the future of banking in Africa. In the UK, anyway, and I got a job at one of the old British investment banks, which was interesting, being sort of a black guy at a venerable British bank. Absolutely, In yeah. those days. Yeah. Um, I probably had maybe more of a random walk in terms of my career than perhaps might be apparent. You know, I started off in kind of uh, corporate banking, actually, and then I realized it was pretty boring. And then <laughs> at the time, I thought it was. And then I ended up actually at Credit Suisse Financial Products, kind of at the forefront of derivatives. Yeah, in right. In those days, in the early 90s. Yeah. So that was an incredible learning curve and very exciting because we were dealing in, you know, very, very interesting new technologies in finance around risk management and investment and so on. And then I um, started actually covering African customers from London. So I was spending a lot of time flying to Lagos and Joburg and Cape Town and Accra and places like that. And during those trips, I realized I actually wanted to live in Africa. It was a very exciting time. And you may recall around then was the whole Africa rising narrative was beginning to form. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and frankly, you know, I think as a black person, I wanted to live in Africa and South Africa offered me that opportunity. So in the late 90s, 99, I think I, uh, I packed my bags and jumped on a Virgin Atlantic plane and headed south. Yeah, it's been great, but not entirely without challenge, but it's been fun. So I, and so for me, I think someone who's 
learning about the continent and both the challenges and opportunities here. You know, you're someone who's sort of seen this whole curve, the, the whole life cycle, especially over the last sort of couple of decades. What, what, what were some of the surprises for you, but also maybe some of the opportunities you've seen specifically over the last couple of years? I'll never forget my boss in London saying to me, why would you want to leave this luxury liner to go and <laughs> inhabit a rusty ship off the coast of South Africa? And he was joking, but you yeah. know, that's, and I thought, yeah, you're right. That's quite a crazy thing to do, but I wanted that adventure. I wanted that meaning and, you know, I like the challenge and, you know, I've always had a motto that nothing is too difficult if you put your mind to it. So, Absolutely, yeah. And nothing's a waste. And I think when you think about kind of behavioral traits, I think you've got to have that sort of mindset where, you know, if you wake up today and say you want to be a brain surgeon, if you're willing to apply yourself, and I'm not saying it would be easy, but you've got to believe that if you put in the hard yards, you might get there. Um, and this is a thing I observe a huge amount, especially in people that are great at both learning and unlearning. Like they actively put themselves in uncomfortable positions. Mm. They're trying to find their edges and extend them rather than to hold on to what they know. Like mm. the known sort of becomes a bit monotonous. It's almost like you sometimes even have to create drama in your life because <laughs> you, you need that. You sort need of, that anxiety. Yeah, perhaps. yeah. But it's interesting, you know, I mean, you asked about the time personally, you know, when I moved here to South Africa, you know, there was, an, I guess, an element of naivety, which very quickly, you know, you learn. You know, I think when you live in London or New York, you take a lot for granted. And a lot of the world maybe works quite similarly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. You know, when I got here, I realized that very quickly that this was a very different place. You know, I had to, I didn't really have any real connection to South Africa in terms of family or anything. I just liked the country. Yeah. I probably hadn't appreciated enough the deep social divisions that exist here and still do. And I completely underestimated what the lived experience of a black person in South Africa is relative to maybe a black person from another part of the continent or the UK or the US, where you may have felt that there were things you felt were like discrimination or racism, but here it was institutionalized. There were laws, you know, it's a very different experience. So absolutely, yeah. for me, probably my biggest aha moment was recognizing that even though I was a black person in South Africa, what I understood about a subject like racism and what a fellow black South African understood were not the same thing. And that was probably a big unlearn for me because in order for me to, I guess, understand where my colleagues are coming from and understand what they're trying to achieve in their lives and what their perspectives are on many things. I had to really understand deeply where they are coming from and the baggage they come with, the pain, because I think that then helps you understand how to deal with people. Because I, I've always believed that if you don't, if you're not able to connect with a person's journey and history and context, it's very difficult, I think, to get the best out of them because you don't really understand what motivates them and it's not always money it's social justice it's equality it's opportunity it's a level playing field you know and those maybe are not things that are necessarily as people are are acutely aware of 
perhaps in a place like London, where I came from. This is fascinating. And thank you for being so honest and authentic about this. You know, knowing you as I do, I think this idea of empathy that you have is almost like a superpower. You know, I think it's amazing how you're curious, not only about different domains, but like curious about what people, what's going to make them successful, how you can help them. And I think what I've constantly found when I've had people on this show is it's a superpower. Like the people who have kind of developed empathy always get the best information, which ultimately informs how they act, how they behave and how they're successful in different environments. And your curiousness to actually go and find that out, your willingness to get uncomfortable mm. and put yourself in these situations. I think your humility to do that is, it's inspiring stuff. Mm. And Look, I mean, ultimately, businesses are about people, life's about people. So I think the biggest thing you've got to unlearn or learn, whichever way around you are, is people and what motivates people, what makes them tick. I had the privilege when was this, maybe 10 years ago now, to be tasked with a project here at the bank around our foreign exchange business. And it later on led into the build out of our corporate banking business. And I remember I started there. So it's quite funny how life comes full circle. Yeah, full circle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and prior to that, I'd always been, you know, in sort of an investment banking environment, lived on a trading floor for most of my career as a salesman in different asset classes and so on. And what we were trying to do as the firm was to harness the best of the investment bank and the best of the corporate bank to build out a bigger business franchise. And, you know, at the time, it was probably the first time I'd had to reach out beyond the confines of the investment bank to get anything done. Yeah. And I can definitely say there was a big clash of culture. And I'm not saying one is right or wrong. They're just two different cultures, sort of corporate yeah. banking and, and investment banking. But there's also... a a natural symbiosis in terms of the products and solutions in an investment bank and the clients who sit in the corporate <laughs> bank. Right? Yeah, yeah. So we started this project and initially it was just a bit of a nightmare because we had a lot of friction and poor progress. But one of the first things I learned was I had created the burning platform because I had asked that we do this as an organization because I could see in the business that I was then involved in, which was the foreign exchange business, that if we didn't expand beyond the confines of our very narrow client base within the investment bank, then we wouldn't be able to grow. So having rattled the cages, the exco and the board said, okay, go do. So now, 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 yeah. now you have to own it. Right? Yeah, and, yeah. And I couldn't really point at anyone else. But probably one of the biggest turning points there was actually discovering executive coaching, actually, which there's lots of people doing it. But I think if you find the right person, they can really unpeel your onion. Oh, unbelievable. So yeah. I was lucky enough to meet a gentleman called Tom Preston. And he took me on this journey of rethinking everything I did and the way I did it. He focused very much on attitudes and behaviors as being the drivers of performance, not yep. necessarily raw capability. Yeah. He taught me how to think about complex stakeholder maps and how to manage those. Really got me to focus on collaboration rather than command and control. Oh, yeah. Clearly defined measures of success. So this was 10 years ago already. It was, we were in this space. And 
underpinned by kind of clarity around the what, the why, and the who, and the when. And very different for me, because prior to that, I was just an FX sales guy on the trading floor. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, yeah, you were a yeah. contributor doing your stuff. Yeah. yeah. And in that world, you know, you just focused on your own P&L. That's it, yeah. You do the deals largely over the phone or some screen-based technology then as well. And you booked your P&L and you went home for the day. You know, it was very narrow existence. So to go from that to now I've got to find a way to take this gigantic firm in this space on this journey to recreate and break down silos and get involved in areas of the bank that I'd never been involved in. So it was an incredible journey and definitely a huge period of unlearning because for sure everything that had gotten me to where I was then <laughs> was not going to get me to where I needed to go. And there was no turning back because you know, I was the one who'd said, we need to do something like this if we're to build this business in this area. What I love about this story, it just debunks so many myths as well. One of the things, the notions, I suppose, that still exists is leaders do it all on their own. They know all the answers to these crazy archetypes. Hmm. And even the notion of coaching, right? People sort of like, if you're getting coaching, what's wrong with you? And yet every single person I know, all the highest performance people, they all have coaches. Hmm. I've got two coaches, right? <laughs> Someone to help me like focus on what I want to do with my business yes. as well as how I want to grow personally. Mm-hmm. And like, there's nothing more powerful than just having someone helping you pause, asking you some questions, reflecting, and actually reflecting back what you say to them to make you aware of your own behaviors and where you want to grow. And the one th- investment I've ever made in myself that I think is the best investment I ever made was getting coaching Mm. because it helped me sort of figure out who I want to be, how I want to grow, where my gaps are. And I just accelerated exponentially in ways I had never imagined. And yet still we have these prevailing notions of these crazy archetype leaders that know it all. And why would you have coaching? Is there a problem? These are massive things to be unlearned for me. I think the biggest unlearn is that you need to be vulnerable and Having a coach is probably one of the biggest signs that you're prepared to sit there after X years of success in a given area. And this person says, well, good news is you've made it this far. Bad news is (laughs) you may not go any further if you don't change, you know, um, what you do and how you do it. And what was also interesting is through that process, this concept of EQ and really understanding how powerful it is if you can harness it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Because, you know, people are not, we know this now, not motivated by money only. They are motivated by feelings of recognition, doing meaningful work, and all of those things which can often get left by the wayside in the chase for raw P&L. But actually, if you're going to take an organization on a journey, I think as the leader in whichever place, you could be the overall leader of the organization, or you could be leading a division or a small team. If you don't focus on that, in the knowledge that you've got good people with you, right? So then I think you will, um, yeah, you might succeed, but more than likely you won't. And even if you do succeed, the going will probably be heavier than 
and will probably take a very big personal toll on you ultimately as the person. I think that's such a great takeaway for people, you know, and even this journey that many people are on. When you're a contributor, you're great, you're good at executing your work. And in many ways, that's what elevates you to become a manager or a leader of people. And yet, often when you go from a contributor to a leader, it's not the same skills that are going to make you successful. If you try to execute all the work, you're actually going to inhibit other people. And I think that these inflection points of helping people recognize when you are a manager or leader that your job is to create the environment for other people to succeed. And that requires understanding what motivates them, what makes them tick. It might be different from what works for you. Um, And I think, again, like this empathy or the ability to tap into people's emotions and help them find out what matters for them and coaching them in many ways is so much of the role. So it's really interesting to hear how all these sort of dots connect to the different experiences you've put yourself into. Yeah, I think ultimately it comes down to maybe the notion of collective success. I mean, if you think of any relationship, it doesn't work if one person's happy and the other unhappy, right? Absolutely, yeah. And then you expand that into the realm of the workplace. If everybody doesn't feel that they are collectively part of this success, that what they are doing is contributing towards that purpose and success ultimately, and that they can connect their work to that, I think you're going to struggle ultimately. It doesn't mean you don't move forward. I mean, there are many management techniques out there. It's, I suppose, a question of which ones work more sustainably in the long term versus maybe some short-term gains that maybe a stick brings. (laughs) So, you know, I've always focused on that aspect of the work, making sure that the teams are connected to what we're trying to do that they feel part of a team and that they understand the reliance on each other. You know, a few months ago, part of the bank that I look after, we have areas as disparate as client onboarding and digital, for instance, or yeah. a corporate real estate portfolio and strategy and planning. And we're on, at an offsite. And on paper, I guess these are very separate functions who probably think they don't have anything to do with each other. Mm-hmm. But, you know, sitting down and trying to say, well, you know, if you are the person responsible for the digital agenda of the bank, clearly how we onboard clients is important. Absolutely. Because that's yeah. part of the customer experience. And if you're the person in the client onboarding team, the way you can deliver a better service is possibly through digitizing the function, you know. And we're like, oh, okay. Wow. Yeah, we should talk. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, you should talk, you know. So it is about trying to create as many points of connection and kind of collaboration and where everybody feels that together they can achieve more. Easier said than done, I guess, because you're dealing with human beings, you're dealing with organizations with entrenched behaviors and all those things. But, you know, I think it's a journey every leader must go on. And it's actually fun. Well, I I think that's a really interesting transition point for us to think about some of the work you've been doing at an organization level here at APSA at the moment, right? you're getting to end of a multi-year transformation program where you part of Barclays and now have like separated the business from Barclays. It's like a huge effort to get mm. there. What have been some of your insights from doing that program? Because so many of my listeners out here are just, they're stuck in these multi-year transformation programs. They're tough, they're hard. And 
often they never turn out as you expect. And yet you've managed to find a breakthrough and be very successful in achieving this. So what were some of the characteristics that helped you? So first of all, we're not done. <laughs> I don't want to jinx. Are we ever done? I don't, I don't want know. to jinx it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it was a very, it has been a very interesting process. And, you know, it's a total bank-wide effort. We, I suppose, had the benefit of the fact that there was a timeline by which this had to be done. The separation agreements specified that we needed to be off Barclays' systems by a certain time. So I guess that created a nice kind of true north for everybody. But probably the hardest thing, a transition I think we had to make was in the way we approached the work. So I think historically, a lot of our projects, we did them in this very waterfall manner, you know, big requirements documents, you know, galactic committees <laughs> to look at every detail. Um, and then, you know, more often than not, you know, you would find that uh, either the thing didn't deliver what you thought it would deliver or some other variation of, of maybe disappointment with, with the outcome. But we knew that if we worked like that for a program as big as this, we certainly wouldn't make the deadlines and our chances of success probably would have been lower than we were willing to tolerate. And because this was, at least at its core, a very heavy IT project, I think we were quite lucky to have some colleagues in IT who were like, well, guys, there's probably another way we need to think about this. Mm. And what I think was great was people were like, okay, let's hear it. So yeah. there was that willingness to look at another way. Yeah, which is delivery. So began our sort of agile journey. A lot of it required a huge amount of experimentation, even by the teams doing it, because the firm wasn't used to working in that manner. Yeah. Teams weren't used to working in that manner. Leadership, and, managing. You know, all of that. But, you know, I think because there was a level of trust as well amongst the people in the business, I think that helped us to go with the not knowing, so to speak, which was, well, let's experiment here and see. Let's try and do it within a an envelope of discipline, if you want to call it that. But we needed to give these teams the freedom to approach the work differently. And we needed to think differently about how we would track their success and their delivery and how we would deal with failures, which yeah. would no doubt occur. So what were some of those small steps then you used to get started? Like, How did you start to get confidence in this what was somewhat, I guess, an uncertain approach, right? Waterfall would have been very well known mm. to people and it's easy to stick with the known. And yet the team decided to take a more of an unknown approach. What were some of the small steps you used to get started to build that confidence and so momentum? We certainly didn't launch the whole program <laughs> like that. You know, um, yeah. I think within probably the investment banking space was where it initially started, there was a very clear view that, look, we understand the principles of what you're proposing. You know, let's pick project A and get it going and see how it delivers. Another big part of it was a view that we needed to build rather than rely on vendors. So there was also that mind shift change. That's interesting as well, like building that internal mm, capability. Yes. Yeah. So, and I think we just went along the journey knowing that if there were issues, we would have to solve them. But the reality is if we didn't change our way of work, we knew we would fail on day one. 
because the book of work was so big, mm. so complex, yeah, full of many unknowns, and none of that was suitable for a waterfall way of work. You would yeah. spend three years coming up with a requirements document, but actually you had three years to be off the systems. Yeah. So, you know, you really had to do that. You know, I think we invested time with training colleagues in kind of the right methodologies and figuring out how to fine tune. So, you know, one of the biggest challenges was we need something delivered on X date. Show me the plan. Yeah. And, you know, colleagues go, well, here's our first sprint. Yeah. And then after the first sprint, we'll tell you what the second sprint should be, you know, which is not very comfortable when you say, show me the plan. Yeah, right? absolutely. So, yeah. It's almost it, the opposite end of spectrum. But, you know, it was really getting that way of thinking, the sprints, technology, the scrums, mm. you know, multidisciplinary teams to really work together. We certainly took our best people and put them on the project. So we took people out of day jobs and said, this is your life for the next three years. Yeah. Off you go. And I keep coming back to the concept of trust because I think there was a very high level of trust necessary for this to succeed. Yeah. And, you know, if I see where we've gotten to in the time we've gotten to and with the quality of the work, definitely the right decision. Yeah. But, you know, we're not done yet. So I, there'll be no uh, counting chickens I, until we're through the final gate. No, I appreciate that. The thing that really sort of stands out to me is there's many parts of what the stories you're sharing here. But one of the things I often talk a lot about people is trust cadence. It's always important to give a little bit more than you have, like that puts you out there, puts you vulnerable. Mm. But nothing builds trust like when you start to see evidence of a new way of working. And I think one of the powerful techniques about working in these smaller little batches or these smaller sprints is you actually start to see stuff pop out. Right. And I mm. think that's what gives these leadership or people unfamiliar with these methods confidence. They're regularly seeing progress every week, every two weeks. Here's a little bit more. Oh, this isn't what we expected. Now we're going to course correct in the two weeks. And I think that collaboration, right, like that's what builds the relationship both with business owners and technology people and teams overall mm. is these smaller steps, these smaller evidence of progress, of change. It builds momentum, it builds trust, it builds rapport. And I think that's where you see these real transformations in organizations, right? Where people go through an experience together and deliver something yes. beyond their expectations. And, you know, I think that's so unique. Like, I think to help people understand, like, this is like a billion dollar initiative that you're doing here, which is a huge amount of risk for people to mm. be taking on. And, and yet here we are, you coming... I appreciate you're not counting chickens. I think that's great. Yep. And the capability that you've built inside this company now and how you're thinking about, well, we've developed this skill. How do we take it even further? I think for me, that's the most exciting and challenging next step is, like I said, we had an externally imposed kind of deadline. Now we're going to take that away. We have to have a self-imposed deadline, whatever we call that target X or ambition Y, and we have to continue to work like that. So it's going to be very interesting, I think, as an, the next step of this transition, because a lot of the work to date has been maybe more concentrated in certain teams within certain parts of the bank than the whole business. 
now it's about taking that learning and bringing it you know across everything we do you know how we think about customers how we service them you know maybe things that are not necessarily purely technology dependent absolutely right? yeah that's quite exciting but people have seen that if you work differently and motivate people differently and structure the work differently and give people trust and I say give them trust not wait for them to earn it say okay I've heard your plan go do it let me know how I can help I think you get a lot more discretionary effort also out of the team oh absolutely yeah than maybe otherwise so you know we're prepared for that journey and we know that if we are to run faster because I guess the negative byproduct of this program is that it's been all consuming. So we haven't been maybe as externally focused as we would like to have been. You know, this is a big plumbing project if you want to think about it like that. So, you know, we are now coming out of it and the market has moved. So we have to run a little bit faster to make up any lost ground we may have have endured and hopefully accelerate past, you know, the competition. But, you know, we're not the only ones doing this, clearly. This methodology of working is becoming more ingrained. But that's where I think it then goes back to the attitudes, the behavior, the people, the trust, which are not universally out there in abundance. Well, I think that's the bit that's very inspiring for me to hear. You know, I think people can learn how to build software and release software. Mm. But I think the characteristics you're describing, you know, of creating high performance teams where people have a lot of psychological safety, a lot of trust, a lot of clear direction, believe in their colleagues. They've trusted them and delivered and people probably gone above and beyond. And I think what's always exciting for me is when you get those parts, almost like the intangibles Mm. sort of working, you know, it's really a matter of you really picking where do you want to go and helping the team have that direction but you've got a great capability to help you get there. Look, I always think, certainly for me, is the, the pieces that I focus on are the human parts, if you like. I invest a lot of time to make sure that the, the people feel they are trusted, they have the support. I see my job as being to help them think through problems, but without kind of diminishing their accountability, which I think is important. And ultimately, it's a team sport. You may sit in a different seat in the hierarchy of the organization, but it's a team sport. And in that team, we all play our part. And I think that's a very important perspective to have as a leader. Your role can be quite limited to a very small but quite important few pieces that you have to drive. Because if you drive those well, the rest actually happens. This is super inspiring to hear some of this stuff. Like, I love how you connect all these things together. Like, you're very clear on your purpose about Mm. why you're here today. Why did you come to Africa to help create these capabilities, to help contribute to something that you're passionate about? And what's really rewarding for me to hear is here we are now. You're working in this company, helping create these great future leaders of the continent who are building these great software projects who are, you know, this impact I'm sure is going to be felt for years. I guess, well, I'm inspiring to you to see you do that and live it and breathe it. And 
you still stay humble, you mm. still stay curious, you've got a big smile on your face as you're doing it. Yeah. And I think we need more leaders with this type of attitude. So thank you for no. being that type of a role model for yourself and for your teams and for the people here. I think it's fantastic. And so what's the one thing then that you're excited about? Like what's sort of lighting you up most at the moment as you look ahead? What does the future hold for you? I'm really inspired by the opportunity I think we have as an organization, now independent, charting our own destiny and facing off to this land of opportunity. Executing on the strategy that we have, I think will be very, very exciting, very challenging, but super rewarding because it's a strategy that is predicated on growth. It's about going into new markets. It's about developing new products. It's about ultimately changing the metabolic rate of the organization to really step up that level. And that's the sort of challenge that I enjoy. Oh, I, I can see that you're thriving in it. And I yeah, think a yeah. lot of colleagues do. Yeah. Um, it's obviously a very challenging economic and social backdrop. So I don't want to paint an overly rosy picture about life, but in those challenges lies the opportunities. So for me, that's probably the next important stage. And, you know, whatever role I can play in that, I think will be really exciting. We've got a great team of people here who are very excited to be on this journey. We've just been doing our rebranding across the continent. It's gone down well. You know, just to maybe put some context for listeners, you know, we've taken a hundred-year-old brand and completely changed it overnight, effectively across 12 markets. And we've done so and with the excitement of our colleagues and the excitement of our stakeholders in the countries in which we operate. So it's one of those once in a lifetime moments, proud to be part of that journey and looking forward to the next, next gallop or sprint to use <laughs> Good the right stuff. terminology. Listen, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you in the show. Thanks for sharing some of your stories. They're super inspiring. And I think Lots of people, I think, are going to be want to be in touch with you. So I apologize no, for all no the notes problem. you're going to get if people reach out to say thank you. But Absolutely. No, but thank it's been you. A pleasure. It's been really great spending the last few days with you here in Johannesburg. Yeah. I'm sure we'll, we'll carry on the relationship. I look forward to it. Thank you very much. Great. Cool.